Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, by a Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. The S3 plan does not stand for solid snake simulation. What it does stand for is selection for societal sanity. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm still Brian. Hi. Today's episode is Engulfed in Truth, our concluding episode on Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty. We do our usual thematic interrogation and meta exploration centered around the most obvious question What the fuck did I just play? But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. And for today, we brought in a third. PD, can you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm PD Webb. I'm uh, honored to be here. Very excited to talk about this. Peter D. Webb, as he's called. Uh, sorry, I, I still think that's funny. That somebody thought your name was Peter. Yeah. I still think about that sometimes. It was very funny. He said it with all of the confidence in the entire world. Yeah. Hey, Peter. Yep. I had an interview with an NBA team, and a guy called me Peter, even though it's not my name, because he thought that PD was short for Peter. It's not. It's instead of being a pseudonym. It's the gamekeeper in Skyfall who calls M Emma when uh, Bond introduces mm-hmm. them to each other. So, Wow, that's not spoiling any of our future episodes or anything. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Hint, hint. Uh, anyways, PD, do you want to uh, introduce yourself, your uh, you know, experience with Metal Gear Solid, with gaming, all that sort of stuff? Uh, just hit us with it. So my introduction to Metal Gear Solid is um, watching a friend's brother play the Fortune area. Um, and he explained the game that had been happening to that point, and it sounded like the most insane thing I'd ever heard. I was like nine or ten years old. Um the sound design is the thing that like stuck with me. I think I sat there and watched him play for like three or four hours, not really having seen anything like it before. Um, I didn't get a chance to play the games until I was like in my mid twenties. Um, and by that point, um, I had a, a, a disability that, that kept me from like really doing a digital intensive things. So I have experienced metal gear solid entirely through YouTube playthroughs. Um, and like reading uh, philosophical essays about the games. So um, it's led me to a much different appreciation for it because like for me, it's all about the the philosophy and um, I don't want to say lore, but like the strangeness of the games um, as an experience rather than like physically playing them. No, that's that's really great. Uh, I was thinking the other day is is thinking about the movie that's coming and whether Metal Gear Solid would be what it is to me without the gameplay portion, but uh, honestly, between 2011 and 2019, or 2020 rather, I don't think I really played anything other than Ground Zeroes and Phantom Pain, but I would constantly go and just rewatch uh, Snake Eater or Sons of Liberty on YouTube, and I'd feel like I replayed the game or I at least relived that experience. So um, it's neat getting a different perspective on all that. There's a weird thing. This is part of the reason I collect strategy guides, although I haven't bought one for a few years now because I don't have room. And they're becoming prohibitively expensive. But I think one of the reasons I like, because you know, I don't need, like, I have strategy guides for, like, Halo 1, Halo 2. Like, you don't need strategy guides for those games. But I like having them because I like being able to look at the maps in it 
and and that's like a like almost like you're mainlining playing the game again like if you if you just look at the thing and remember what happens at this part you like you can kind of like speed run it almost yeah and it's uh that's just an, that's a really interesting idea because i i think a lot of people rewatch i know like our, our uh, mike grimanov does i don't think he plays games but he watches a lot of games and it's like it, it puts you in an interesting like headspace relative to other people who play them whereas like I don't think you could watch someone play. You could watch someone play Dishonored, but you wouldn't get a whole lot from it because the whole point is like player choice, like player. I don't say agency, but like decision making, like where you go, like what rooftop rooftop you clamber over. Whereas like Metal Gear, it's it's a weird. It's it's like in a liminal space between narrative game and and physical game because there's so much you can take just from the narrative, and then like there's people who there's people who play those games solely for the self gameplay, like. Or, or because they like the wild shit that happens. I, I remember famously Dan Reichert saying that Metal Gear wasn't political at all, and everyone else at Giant Bomb being like, "What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you, you were a moron." And like, I really think that's fascinating because Metal Gear is really on that. Like, Half Life is another game where it's, I love Half Life. I don't think you could just watch someone play it. It would just be kind of like, "Oh yeah, it's a shooter." Like, it wouldn't be that interesting. Whereas, like a lot of RPG games, you don't have to. Like, I don't think you have to play even like the older Final Fantasies to, to get it. Um, I guess you would miss out on the, the tactical, the tactile experience of like personally leveling characters, but there's better games to do that with. So yeah, Metal Gear is in that weird middle space for that kind of game. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. Cause it's a really interesting way to approach the series more so than like, more so than like more action oriented games where it's just kind of, yeah, I watched it and it happened. Like there's nothing really to say. I think that there is, um, more than any other game, like a a Ludo narrative that you can experience as a watcher of the games that you also get as a mm-hmm. player. Like if you watch someone play Gears of War, like you're not getting the power fantasy. You're not getting the extremely satisfying reload thing that happens in Gears of War. <laughs> yeah. Watching it. That's the only real difference. But like if you watch Metal Gear, like any of them, I might have a little bit different idea on the cutscene since this is entirely a cutscene for me. But like the the feeling isn't fundamentally different, except that when I try to play the game, it's just so difficult uh, because of you know the situation uh, with my fingers that like mm-hmm. I get frustrated with the gameplay, but not necessarily the game. Like I tried uh, I tried zeros and it just like nope. Yeah, like I, I was like, oh, this is this is probably a thing I would enjoy if I was physically capable of doing it, but I just can't. And um, it reminds me of like when I was a kid, my parents bought me a uh, legend uh, Ocarina of time and around Thanksgiving, they let me open the official guidebook. Oh man. And I would just like read through it like, like over and over. And by the time that Christmas came around, I was allowed to open the game. Like the, the, the spine of, of the guidebook was gone. Cause I just read through it so many times and it felt like I had played the game, but then I got a secondary, like so experiencing those, yeah. those moments that couldn't quite be translated from even like the official game art or the way that, you know, the, the pros of, of the game writer. Cause I mean, there is some legitimately good pros in, uh, in game guides. Oh yeah. Yeah. Especially, especially in the, before the internet, really like before the internet really had a lot of game facts and stuff. Like, yeah, FF7, the FF7 guide is like legitimately useful for that stuff. I have a weird, it's, it's weird because I'm, almost always a proponent of playing games if you if you're capable of like i really don't like people who watch games that they already own They're like oh i don't feel like finishing it i'll just like like people who are physically capable of playing a game and just give up on it and just watch the rest of the cutscenes. like that annoys me but it's weird because i've actually had 
my you mentioned Ocarina of Time. My stepbrother owned owned that game on sixty N sixty four, and I was not allowed. To, well, okay, I played the N sixty four, but I only played it when we played like Mario Party or Goldeneye or something. And all the other time, my other stepbrothers were playing it. So like, I've seen that game beaten probably ten times, and I've beaten it once. And it was several years later. So I had that same kind of experience where it was like, I just had to watch someone play Ocarina a lot. Uh, and I had the same kind of experience with, um, well, actually the actual physical. I tried to play Outer Wilds, which is one of my favorite games the last 10, 15 years. And I physically can't play it because it gives me vertigo. Like I've tried 10 times and I keep getting, I keep feeling nauseous when I play it. But I've watched that game played through three or four times now. And it's a weird, it kind of changed my perspective on that stuff. Because I used to definitely be like, a, you have to play it to understand it. It's like, oh, I feel like I understand Outer Worlds pretty well. And I haven't played more than 35 minutes of it because I become physically ill. I think one thing that's fantastic about this particular game um, is that there's so much writing about it. Um, so even if like, even if you can't get into the story or like the story is uh, too esoteric at times to like <laughs> form a linear or coherent narrative, which we will do most like, definitely be talking about there's so much writing that you can experience this as a uh like you can take some slimmer of it away regardless of how literally you interpret the events of the game and that's the thing too i love uh I, i'm gonna whine about this as a um, literature major a person who has a bachelor's degree in english and didn't do more because he was lazy uh i get really annoyed with like the whole the whole cottage industry of like ending explained and like I understand there are some like sometimes people are just dense and that's not even like they're stupid. It's just like I know people who didn't understand the ending of Inception. And it's like they just didn't understand it. Like that's it's not like they missed anything. It just went over their heads at first. That stuff's fine. But so much now, like I saw uh, who was it? Was it Rothko? Somebody had these paintings. It was like, explain to me why these are good. And I was just like, explain art to me. I'm stupid. Like it's people refuse to like people have to have. Literal, literal minded art interpretation is the worst shit in the world to me. Yeah, no, it's like the wickification of art and boiling everything down to mm -hmm, bullet mm -hmm, points. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, it's just not a meaningful way to engage in stuff. It's like a search for Easter eggs or references to stuff that really don't have anything to do with theme or tone. Ten WandaVision Easter eggs that'll make you go, whoa. Even with this uh, current uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier thing, it's kind of got the muddled politics you'd expect of a MCU property, but it's at least, you know, somewhat talking about, say, policing and imperialism and race politics. But then you look at the online discourse and the articles being written, it's like John Walker, he's such a bad guy, a guy who's obviously coded as a villain in like a black and yeah. white superhero yeah. story. It's like even when they try to somewhat elevate the bar, it just it people aren't grasping onto that sort of stuff. Well, I saw I saw that people were were sending White Russell death threats. Like they thought that was he was really doing that. Like the stupidest fucking people on the earth like this stuff. It, the just the mushiest brained people. Like I don't mean to be able, but like there's it's there's no hope for those people. Like or as far as understanding art, like they're just gone. And it's one of the reasons I really like MGS too, because it pisses those people off a lot. And it did a lot when it came out, you can tell. Because game criticism still isn't a bad place, but like 2001, it was, might as well have been the Stone Ages. Like there was nothing. Well, all that said, <laughs> we're actually here to talk about Metal Gear Solid 2. And, you know, 
try to make sense of everything we just experienced and played through. And there's so much we can dive into with themes, ideas, and metas. Um, I say we start with perhaps the more material or political themes, kind of like we did in our MGS1 recap, and then let the conversation get more weird and out there near the end. You know, not unlike Sons of Liberty itself. The Hudson River, two years ago. Just as a matter of place, the story is very clearly and explicitly set in New York, and New York as a synecdoche of America, not to be confused with the movie Synecdoche New York. We already talked quite a bit about New York in video games and the New York trilogy, which heavily influenced Kojima. But it's no accident that the game's two missions take place on a tanker and offshore plant, both evoking the oil market and both conveniently just a few miles from Wall Street. Oil and oil spills were a huge news item on the heels of Exxon Valdez, but it's also incredibly integral to American military and economic dominance. It goes all the way back to 1945 when FDR solidified relations with Saudi Arabia and later when President Nixon eliminated the gold standard. When the U.S. wanted to back Israel in the Yom Kippur War, OPEC in response jacked up prices and lowered supply, which totally fair and good on their part. All this showed an arena in which America could be pushed around on the global stage, and we weren't having any of that. In 1979, the U.S. would work out an agreement with Saudi Arabia to use U.S. dollars for oil contracts. Those dollars would flow back to America through contracts with companies in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia would in turn receive technology and infrastructure enhancements, and more importantly, significant influence in American international politics, including support from the U.S. military. Uh, Disputes in Palestine, Soviet aggression in Afghanistan, and the Iran-Iraq war were all of regional concern at the present time. This film is dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters in Afghanistan. I have to say every time, I have to say it. You have to add it. And thus, the petrodollar is born which made the U.S. dollar the dominant global currency from the late 70s onward. The process of recycling petrodollars would move excess liquidity into the financial markets and help birth the giant, the economy, that rules us to this day, with its epicenter, Wall Street, squarely in lower Manhattan. And that causes zero problems ever. Don't ask about it. I don't know why you would bring it up. It's good. It worked fine. We literally threw, what, half a million bodies at the... Uh, alter of the economy in the last year with COVID. So um, there's all that. Solidus's plan to liberate Manhattan by taking it offline was about striking at the heart of this power center. Your final showdown with the third snake is atop Federal Hall, 26 Wall Street in the heart of the financial district. It's where the Stamp Act Congress met. It's where the Articles of Confederation was drafted. And it's where George Washington, whose statue Solidus dies under, was sworn in as the first U.S. president on April 30th, 1789. That date sound familiar? All this is to say the theme of American power is front and center throughout this game. The New York setting, the Hollywood game aspects of the story, the oil markets, All of it centers the major U.S. institutions that steer this world. In the opening, you photograph a nuclear tank that clearly has U.S. Marines printed on it, and you finish the game by killing the big bad who has U.S. Army clearly printed on his armor. Even without a single American flag appearing in this game, you can feel the star-sprangled presence throughout. The military, the economy, as dominated by oil markets, nuclear weaponry, 
these are the patriots, the very law by which society is organized. And if you consider this as a sequel to MGS1 thematically, the first game was very much centered on nukes, the mechanism by which America enforced its world order following World War II and into the 60s. But by the late 70s, mutually assured destruction ensured that full-scale war between large nations was off the table, and we moved to detente and proxy wars in the global south with the petrodollar and military supporting them every step of the way. I think it's really interesting really quick that uh, – we'll talk about this more with three, but that in you know, in the, in the past, in Metal Gear Solid 3 and, and 4, the original game, they were the philosophers. As soon as they became American, they you – know, as soon as that power transitioned solely to, the, to American hands, they stopped being philosophers and thinkers and said they were patriots. Like thinking is done. We don't need to think anymore. It's time for action, and that action is American dominance across the world. And that's just, you know, that's just a little subtle. That's how you use language to communicate theme. And despite the language barrier, something I think Hideo was very good at when he wanted to be. Yeah. And I think it also, the philosophers were a time, you know, during World War II or prior to that, where America was probably the dominant force, but not clearly the dominant force, especially with the British Empire still. Uh, generally far-reaching. But, you know, just like in our real world in the 70s and 80s, America clearly emerged as a dominant power as they defeated the USSR through its proxy wars and cold wars and all that. So um, it's that imperialism of language or language of imperialism. I forget which one Skullface, you know, bleats on about, but um, it's very much that as well. So I think it kind of ties both of those points that you made together. Pre-World War One, and even after World War One, I, I think America mostly viewed itself as an isolationist sort of uh, economic superpower. Like that was – that's part of the reason that one of the, the – the, you know, the uh, all the false flag stuff for Pearl Harbor, which people still believe in, by the way, was that, that you know, it was the U.S. government's way of, of dragging the public opinion to the war. But um, – because people didn't, people didn't care. It was the European war. That's what the – World War One was called here the European War, and yeah, it's just like um, just a huge change in the American century of our, our opinion of what we are, because now we still, to this day, I mean, the fact that we have listen, I'm not going to pass any sort of ethical judgment, but the fact that we have dealing with Saudi Arabia when ideologically Saudi Arabia should be like, if you, if you believe in the American like the the if you believe all the, the lies that the American government has perpetuated about itself, that should be our, our, our biggest enemy. And like, it doesn't matter. It's just money to be made. Who gives a shit? And like, that's just not the way that this country would have thought of itself pre world war two. But we sort of, um, American exceptionalism got like went super Saiyan after that, because we, we, we want, you know, we were the only, as everyone remembers, the only army that invaded Berlin was the American army. Of course, there was no one else there. Obviously, it was and the, uh, the only Americans died at D-Day. There weren't there were no one else in many other countries. It was an American operation. It's just we sort of allowed ourselves, and uh, ironically, through the lens of Hollywood, we sort of crafted very quickly because you can look back and, and see stuff from the '30s that, that I mean, America had no. It was a country recovering from a horrid collapse. It had no self-esteem in that way, and then. Suddenly, 15 years later, everyone is zapping again. Like it's just insane, and it, I, I like I like that that sort of 
quick, rapid codification of myth is sort of reflected in the Patriots themselves, who just sort of became the Patriots all of a sudden. It works. It, it, it's one of the things, like I said, he, he's good at, he was good at being subtle through language when he wanted to be. When he didn't want to be, he was naming characters quiet because they didn't speak. Uh, <laughs> um, it's really, that's the, that's the Kojima thing. He, he, he swings wildly between like Melville and the guy from Dude Detective who said the, that episode was called Hunters in the Dark because they were hunting in the dark. It's like he has no, it, there's almost no middle ground for him. It's either extremely cogent and intelligent writing or the stupidest thing you've ever heard in your life. And that's what makes him special to me. Yeah. Garth Marenghi's uh, Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Petey, because I know you got some stuff coming up. I find it really interesting that Kojima's like Americanisms um, are sort of treated as a, a Hollywood thing that, you know, he likes um, dudes with weird haircuts who wear the leather jackets and, and wear sunglasses inside. Um, but I think that an underrated, uh, or underexamined aspect of, of Kojima's Americanism is the foundation of the Patriots, um, as a concept. Um, it comes from, I believe the, the secret government idea from Bill Moyers, uh, who's the former press secretary to Lyndon B. Johnson, later PBS and jerk, PBS investigative journalist, whose 1987 essay, The Secret Government, couldn't possibly be a better summary of the uh, Metal Gear Solid Patriots or Metal Gear as a story broadly. Uh, to quote, the secret government is an interlocking network of official functionaries, spies, mercenaries, ex-generals, profiteers, and super patriots who, for a variety of motives, operate outside the legitimate institutions of government. This secret government idea was revealed during the extra-legal, extrajudicial, extra-constitutional American involvement in Iran-Contra, during the second Reagan term, but the Iran-Contra was not an isolated incident, but the latest in a pattern of unsupervised interventions and silent involvement stretching back to the post-war period. Does this sound familiar at all? Arsenal Gear itself explains itself as a kind of consciousness formed by layer by layer within the crucible of the White House over 200 years, the formless, inextricable discipline and morality of a nation. The secret government is also a meme lend to itself, a self-financed, self-perpetrating organization accountable to its own whims, wishes, an invisible hand doling out justice according to unwritten rules. This is the blob or the deep state or the secret government or the philosophers or the patriots. Iran-Contra is a, a wild read because it falls into the category of history that sounds fake or shoddily written. Or if you describe it to a normal human being, uh, you sound like a... a a uh, person who uh, is running around a, a major city shoeless talking about the sky falling. Like most CIA activities in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, if you describe it to somebody who doesn't pay attention to that stuff, you sound like a complete lunatic. It's to the, it's to the point where I'm not, I'm, I, I firmly believe like 25% of CIA operations are designed to make people who believe in that they're like designed to make people look insane if they found out about them. You can't talk about it. Yeah, Metal Gear's definitely never said anything about psychological warfare or confusing <laughs> people with information <laughs> or anything like that. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely agree. With you. And half these stories are like specifically declassified by the CIA and FBI. Yes, it's that's not the thing. like this is coming from some, you know, tell all reveal victim from all these. Op it's like literally the CIA is like, oh yeah, we did that. Oh yeah, we sent death letters to uh, Martin Luther King Jr., whatever. Uh, we'll do it again. And they probably are. <laughs> Wasn't there a, uh, a headache ray pointed at a uh, foreign um, like dignitary's uh, office building in, in Cuba? 
like 10 years ago. Like it was just a, a weird uh, noise that like made people like not be able to like think or really function. And it's just like, why did this happen? Like, oh yeah, uh, yeah we, we were just trying some stuff out. I have no idea if you're fucking with me or not, but you know, again, I'll, I'll believe it. And you probably sound like a lunatic to anyone else who heard that story. MK Ultra stuff uh, it was mostly revealed by them 20 years later. Yeah, yeah, we tried that out. Didn't work. It was like, oh, cool. <laughs> Good to know. But it's fun that we're also starting to get that with, uh, not to get too into current events, but it's fun that we're also starting to get that with the American police force. Where Did you guys see that? Uh, apparently, the guy who runs one of the uh, training, the one that, uh, what was it, No More Hesitation, just uses cutouts of his own children as, as targets so he doesn't hesitate when the moment comes. It's like, what the fuck? If you describe that to a normal person, they wouldn't think you were it's just like, that's not that's not real. It's like, no, apparently it's real. Jesus. Uh, sorry, PD, we cut you off, so you can. If you describe these to a normal person, you would sound nuts. Like, involved in Iran-Contra is an international conglomeration of corporations formed to build a legal, fi- legal fiction hiding both the government involvement um, through organizations like the CIA and mega donors like the Coors family that's called The Enterprise. There are also secret Swiss bank accounts and something called Operation Staunch. There were indictment, indictments eventually, but President H.W. Bush, who had lost his re-election campaign, a man not not implicated in Iran-Contra, pardoned five people in 1992 and another awaiting trial. Looking at the design documents for Metal Gear Solid 2, it's clear that the commitment to stopping global communism in any theater at any cost, which we would call the Reagan Doctrine, left an impact on Kojima's worldview and imagination. These are themes that will linger on multiple other entries in the series uh, to various levels of uh, uh, thematic consistency. In a design document titled Absolute Evil in Metal Gear Solid 2, Hideo Kojima wrote, Evil in Hollywood films has always changed depending on the time in which the film story takes place. In the American market, where audiences like to see good triumph over evil, the absolute enemy, be it a race, a country, or setting, has always changed with the values of the times. Like uh, when I was a kid, like Russians were no longer the person you fought. And there's like suddenly a uh, a James Bond film where like North Koreans were the bad guys, and then it it like later switched to like a terrorist organization. It's like oh, that's we're doing a you know ideology. That's that's one of the things I think we're gonna have fun with, with talking about the Bond movies, is where that lens points over time. I just want to say real quick that idea of uh, an absolute enemy changing with the times will not be coming back in any future games. It's not important to anything we're going to be covering. Uh, it's not the main theme of, a, of the next game we're doing, so don't worry about it. However, Kojima continues, the evil in Metal Gear Solid 2 is the American government. However, this does not refer to the Americans in general, nor to any particular persons, but the festering discharge that has built up within the democratic state of America over the years. The intention is not to defame any race, state, or ethnicity, but rather to look at the monster that the country's political structure has created. It is an intangible entity, yet at the same time a massive menace to this last sentence really strikes me, um, both because uh, this was, you know, written in like 1999 um, before some of like the information uh, control is, is probably the wrong word, but like uh, information economy really developed. It's a great word for it. Yeah. I thought about the, in particular, the uh, Egyptian revolution in, in 2014. Um, there's a book called The Revolution in the Age of Social Media, The Egyptian Popular Insurrection by Linda Herrera of the University of Illinois. And she has a chapter called Memes and the War of Ideas. Uh, there was, you know, an, 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 an uprising against the government in Egypt. People used Twitter, Facebook, and um, they developed, the various sides developed uh, like 
they called them e-militias in the book, where people would just post, you know, through it. But I mean, through it in in this case entails a a, a, a somewhat extra democratic process. Um, Herrera says one of the most powerful mechanisms which ideology functions is the invisibility mechanism. People cannot reflect on, struggle against, and change what they do not see. What we aim to show by looking at memes is that memes have consequences in the war of position. They are produced and circulated by social actors with interests, stakes, clear relations, be they antagonistic or an allegiance to power. Given the hidden structure of ideology, meme makers sometimes think they are working against the internal interests of a system when they are in fact supporting and reproducing it. Virtual spaces are multi-layered and dynamic. They incorporate myriad actors with overlapping and shifting interests. In the mimetic war, it is not always possible to pigeonhole a person or group to a particular position. There are, for instance, the corporations that try to monetize and manipulate user behavior, tech engineers who are driven by the desire to innovate, security forces that track and monitor users, and anti-in-pro-system hackers, spies, who go to great lengths to advance their own causes. Like, this is all things that this game is about, and... Um, while it gets very wild at the end, it's important to note that like this game is does have very serious things to say about serious topics, um, and the you know the selection for societal sanity is a logical conclusion of the ability to do the things that intelligence agencies have been trying to do forever, shaping a more aligned culture through memes. So just the, the phrase "the memetic war" feels like Solid has actually said it. I'm just trying to imagine it. the memetic war. And then, well, I knew him back then. R.I.P. John Sagan, the great. Our sweet underused boy who just didn't get enough in, in, in this game or in this series because he is so wonderful every time he's on screen. Here, here. It's funny that one of Arsenal Gear's main point is that they're doing the Victor's Right History Books meme, but just algorithmically rather than, less, rather than left to what they quote as the mercy of nature. Um for every cat video, there's Facebook's role in the genocide in Myanmar or turning the internet off in Egypt during the revolution or fake news or QAnon or a million other phenomenon accelerated because of the interplay of visible power and invisible algorithm. We are more connected and those connections are vulnerable to actors beyond our visibility. Uh, one of the, the more essential points is that, you know, we don't fully understand the nature of, of, uh, of, the nature of information and that information can be used against both us and our institutions um, broadly. Um, Moyers, to, to finish this out, uh, in talking about Iran-Contra, says that since our adversaries know about covert operations, which I would say is the, the themes of the non-mainline Metal Gear games, uh, the only people are fooled are the American people. But consent is the very heart of our constitutional system. How can people judge what they do not know but what they are told falsely? Federal Hall. <laughs> I don't want to linger too much longer on the setting, but I do want to mention a few things more because it's more well-considered than simply how it invokes American hegemony and the massless power that rules over all of us. Uh, in the simplest form, Big Shell literally... It's a shell game. You know, it's a big cover-up operation. 
And the big shell's hex shape uh, of repeating pattern invokes the hive or hive, ma- hive mind and controlling people via information control, making them drones, uh, narrowed individuality. These are all kind of concepts we associate with the hive and the hive mind for the good of the colony. Um, and also just the very repetitive uh, uh, shapes of the big shell, just, you know, the hexagons repeated ad nauseum. It's... Uh, it sounds like exactly like the thinking of a machine as I quote the Matrix Reloaded for the fourth time during our Metal Gear Solid 2 coverage uh, because it's just efficient and how a machine would think, how an AI would the- theoretically think. Well, also, as I've said, it also it deliberately looks like the VR missions from MGS1, like aesthetically. That's the look they're going for, which is calls into question. We never really talked again about, I think it's good to do it now, whether or not divorcing the player from the narrative, which is very dangerous to do in Metal Gear, how much of what we actually play is what happened? Because that's one of the main sort of questions about this game is like, especially specifically the tanker portion, like, is that what Snake, what happened to Snake? Or is that Raiden's VR version of the mission that he did? And like, I think this, the part where the, where everything bleeds through actually is evidence against it being, like it's evidence for that being the original what Snake actually experienced because like it's just too it's too I don't know maybe it's the fact that GW's brain is being devoured by Emma's uh the worm cluster but like I feel like if it was a VR if it was, if that was supposed to VR be VR they would be more blatant like again subtlety is not uh narrative subtlety is not something Kojima is particularly well well noted for and maybe I don't know. I don't, I don't, maybe that's something that never came up. Like maybe that question never came up and it just sort of ha- people came across it organically after the game came out. But I really, that's one of the most interesting things to me about the game. Because like I said, we don't see, there's those cutscenes when Snake is talking about the tanker, but you, there's scenes that don't happen in the game. And like they should, if that's, if what we play is what happened to Snake, but maybe not. I don't know. I'm less convinced about it than I was. So I, coming from the Star Wars fandom, the thing that I've come to hate most in the world is Wikipedia, um, which is like the idea that you can just build linear stories that everyone takes away the same thing from. Like, you know, there's books where two things happen, you need to know two of them, the rest of it doesn't matter. Um, But like some of my favorite Star Wars books are the ones where like a weird thing happens in the corner and like that's, you know, what I've carried with me for my whole life. Um, There's a, an industry of, of like Wikipedia style completism on the internet where people need to record what really happened in Metal Gear Solid 2, 97 minute runtime. Um, and like, I don't think it particularly matters what here does or doesn't happen. I don't think it matters to the writers of the story, but I also think that the story doesn't seem to care about it because it allows you to take away what you choose to believe about any of these things, because ultimately that's the narrative. That's the lesson this game is trying to teach you like the very last thing that we see is Raiden being like yeah i choose not to be the the child soldier um which is a real hard thing to sidestep um his life has really sucked but he chooses not to be as i named him last time i played it john come <laughs> just because i got the i got the image of Raiden looking down at this at a pair at some dog fans just say john come and because i'm on the internet i thought that was very funny I'm 31 years old. <laughs> I uh, I once rec- or I once rented again. I'm an old person now. I rented uh, Majora's Mask, um, thinking I could beat it in like the five days that they give you to, when you could rent a game. The save was called Butt Nut. 
And I don't think I played the game for like an hour because I was laughing so hard. So yeah, I, I get maybe it. the hardest I've ever laughed in my life was this is when I was like 13, though, so it's more excusable. Is when my brother, my same stepbrother, was playing Final Fantasy VIII, and there's a dog character you get to name, and uh, his and all his moves are named after him, like Angelo Strike, Angelo Blast, and he just named him Fuck in capitals. <laughs> And we thought it was pretty funny. And then like 45 minutes later, he's looking through, he's actually looking through the abilities and it's just fuck blast, fuck drop. And we were, I, I think we laughed for 20 minutes, like straight. Fuck, fuck, strike. Yeah, so, you know, gamers are very mature, both emotionally and mentally. And we're, we're able to handle this sort of content easily. It's, it's very easy for us, as you can tell from everything we've ever done. Gamers rise up. I don't know. Do you remember the panic that gripped the computer industry prior to the end of the century? You mean the Y2K problem? That's right. If you recall. So we should start shifting into some of the technological and mimetic themes. And I want to start talking about the times this game was developed around, something we started to broach a little bit earlier. Uh, the first is Y2K, which I realize that not everyone we know might actually know <laughs> what Y2K is based on a recent tweet that went around. But basically, everyone feared that all technology would explode or kill us or whatever doomsday scenario you want because the dates programmed into systems only represented the two last two digits of the year. So when it flipped from 99 to 00, um, Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines is like a plausible scenario, I guess, is what people were getting at. Um, a lot of this stuff had been um, resolved well ahead of the Y2K bug and nothing really happened. Uh, in the Metal Gear Solid context, it was the fact that the Patriots... Um, you know, because they kind of developed the technology for their information control through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But the fact that basically every system had to be updated for the Y2K system is how the Patriots started getting their whatever, their secret microchips or whatever they put in the COVID vaccine, uh, started getting that into computer systems all over the world. And that way uh, they became started being fed all the information and being able to suppress, control, or feed information that they want in that sense. They deus exed us. They, 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 did a, they pulled a full deus ex. Yes. They, um, um, made a mandatory deus ex human revolution as a mandatory uh, upgrade for all augmented people that ends up having the evil control virus that the main villain guy puts in it, which is really what makes those games like they're still, those newer ones are still good, but they're really harder to like enjoy because there's a lot of shit in there. Like winkingly, there's a lot of shit in there where like some of the people were like FEMA is coming. Like you go to a FEMA concentration camp at one point and people were like, what? Uh, it's really what makes Deus Ex a game of the nineties because in the nineties you could, you could exist in that X-Files space where every conspiracy theory was correct. And it was kind of funny like you could have fun with it. And now it's like, oh no, people who believe in conspiracy theories are actually like trying to murder our representatives and will and literally believe that the people responsible for them and anyone who looks like them should be murdered. And it's like a little less enjoyable now. Thanks, 9-11. It's like when you take the uh the Umberto Echo out of like when you move it from anywhere but Italy post-war. It's like, oh, that you know, that's the only place that can be true. You move it anywhere else and it's suddenly not as uh interesting and you're like oh this is actually much more sinister than i thought yeah you can't i don't think you could make a game now where like majestic 12 are the bad guys and you go to fight up you fight one of the final bosses at area 51 and like that's that's like a 90s thing and like you know you can't really do it now which is why the days new days x games aren't as good that and the company who makes them keeps getting pulled off to work on that dog shit avengers game instead of making the stuff they want to make but that's a 
entirely different conversation. And that's on Square Enix entirely because they're a shitty company who has shitty ideas. And kind of like living through that era where everything became digitized, um, the you know the philosophical question of and the fear of over-reliance on technology and as a possible source of downfall, the aforementioned Terminator movies just being one, you know, popular iteration of that idea. Um, and, you know, one thing that this game does, and a couple other uh, stories have done this, is also view um, the destruction of that technology as a source of liberation. That's kind of what Solidus's plan is, is by hitting a nuke above New York, uh, using an EMP to fry the systems of Wall Street and, you know, the police, the United Nations, um, that that would somehow liberate people uh, because they're no longer under control of this, you know, amorphous mass. And all of these ideas are very much of their time. You know, the computer virus, the worm cluster. Um, it all represents the very early days of the internet where it was very much the wild, wild west and no one was sure what the internet would become. But it was, it was the wild, wild west as Will Smith proved to us. Wicked, wicked wild. Do not, that movie is not good. No, it's great though. It's, it's, it's the kind of movie that doesn't exist anymore where it's, it's a complete star vehicle that they spent like $400 million on and it's just, it's a movie of complete excess. Like it's great. That that is the kind of movie that the MCU stuff has killed, and like I don't know if we're better or worse off for it, but I do kind of miss them. I miss the movies that had like the uh, the official soundtrack of the movie for like the Godzilla, like the nineteen eighty Godzilla movie, which is bad. Come with me. Yeah, somebody like Jimmy Page and Puff Daddy, baby. You know they spent what like two hundred million dollars on the marketing for that movie, <laughs> and you know like you get you get like the official Doritos flavor of uh, I don't of iRobot or whatever, like that shit. I miss that. The Space Jam movie has a Jay-Z verse wrapped by Bugs Bunny. Yes, it does. You know, it was funny, though. You were talking about how the the hacking stuff is very much like of that time. I thought it was weird when Hal uh, finishes the worm cluster and then yells, hack the planet. That was funny. That's another that's another 90s thing we've lost aesthetically. It's just like the concept of a hacker. Because now it's just like a dork who, who breaks into people's Instagrams and pirates movies. It's not like there's nothing... The, the concept of a hacker is like any kind of, you know, like a punk or like any kind of political actor. It's like, no, not really. Well, partly because all we have left of that is anonymous. Those fuckers don't do anything. They're cosplaying. I think one of the reasons that um, like hackers had like a specific visual identity, like even the movie Hackers, it's like a bunch of teenagers wearing extremely cool clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, Very good because, stuff that I want to wear. Yeah, like, uh, or Johnny Mnemonic, another... Um, mm-hmm. Good, bad uh, star movie um, is because like the start of the digital age, the new epoch um, was very much like a demarcation. Like as much as Y2K it sounds like an insane uh, mass hysteria event um, in terms of like, how could you ever believe this is true? It's because it felt meaningful because there were a group of people, you know, uh, like the te- techno libertarians and um, in what we now call Silicon Valley, techno anarchists doing freaking like there was a a digital uh, political ideology corresponding to basically everything that happened in the real world, because there was the, it was a broadly seen idea that digital was a blank slate, uh, not an extension of our corresponding world with the same weight and history. And so everyone assumed that a digital intervention would topple established power structures through digital imagination. It did not. Which is where like second life comes from that concept. Yeah. I, Again, this is a, a lot of this is just old men being nostalgic. Old men, another JSX 
reference uh being nostalgic for things for shit that like wasn't good like i have a weird nostalgia for that specific like late 90s uh like video game release thing where you have like uh what's his name the guy who played young anakin like at a nintendo 64 release it's just like that weird shit like that weird intersection and i think i think what it is is a that stuff's funny like it looks it's like jason alexander holding a gamecube you, you've you've said it uh yes um it is funny like those are humorous to look at but i think the other thing is that those came from when there's a charm to when corporations didn't understand the internet and just kind of throwing shit at the wall to be like, does this work? I don't know. It's the same thing. It's the same thing you see with like superhero movies from the early 2000s that weren't X-Men. They weren't called X-Men. Where like they had, they had no idea what Daredevil was. They were just like, what is it? Put an Essence song there. I don't fucking know. It, it'll, it'll make $400 million somehow. <laughs> That's exactly right, I think. it's a, They hadn't monetized the rot yet, and they hadn't yes. like streamlined their revenue streams and uh, figured out— Algorithmically like, determined the, the most cost-effective ways to to, yeah. to make profit and, and get eyeballs. You were talking about the star-driven. And like living through the 90s, you had you know your summer Will Smith blockbuster. Um, you know, you had Tom Cruise. He's still Cruise. doing it, by the way. Gemini Man, yeah, not a good movie, but he's doing it. Watch it though, because it, it is that. It is that's the only one left. He's the only guy. He's yeah. the last one. And even when you do find a star like that, like say a Tom Cruise or Keanu Reeves, the studio's first instinct is to lock them into a franchise. And now at least I, I don't want to give Tom Cruise any credit because he's like terrible. Uh, but like at least Mission Impossible is definitely his like brainchild, and he's basically the shepherd of it. Um, but even even so, you know. Uh, Keanu Reeves is sucked into John Wick. And, you know, what do people want? You see half of the Tumblr discourse or the fan casting discourse is like, how can we get these great actors into the latest Disney commodified product? Um, It's not like, hey, I want to see these people do something, you know, like I love like Robert Pattinson and Daniel Radcliffe, like exploring stuff after their big franchise stuff. And then getting back into a big franchise. (laughs) Of course. But no, I am. But Pattinson's doing it the coolest way imaginable, where he's like, I'm not going to work out to play Batman. And people lose their minds. <laughs> I think that to the point of, of uh, digital commerce is that, like, I think what us three olds are, are conspiring towards is the idea that, like, digital life, life in real life, there was a separation. Like, mm-hmm. I remember meeting people who were famous on MySpace. And they were like the lamest people in the entire world. But they their digital fame didn't translate to real life. Now, like, the second that anybody has any like online uh, uh, credibility or notoriety, it materially changes the conditions of their lives. Yep. Like they can start, you know, selling, uh, you know, like flat time ET or whatever, um, you know, TurboTax product that, that, that they can. But there was a time where like the digital and the analog, even those, the, that framing, weren't seen, they were seen as separate worlds that could occasionally interact, but, they were not. They were dominions unto themselves. Yeah, and we get to the point now where, like, it, you, the internet used to be like there was almost no integration whatsoever. Like, you would have your own forums that you were on with like this one weirdo, and you'd never see that person anywhere else. And now it's like, follow me on Twitch, follow my Tumblr, follow me. You know, like, it's just too integrated to be like. It's been sanded off. A lot of the weirder edges have been sanded off, and in some ways, that's a good thing because the internet is forced. <laughs> You will see the worst shit you ever imagined on the internet, but like there was, there was still charm to that. 
Uh, the thing I was going to say before is I feel guilty because I still get sucked into that star stuff because I saw somebody the other day like Justin Thoreau should be Reed Richards. And I was like, hell yeah. Then I was like, wow. Two seconds later, I was like, I don't want to see that. Like, let him be Justin Thoreau. Like, let him do whatever the fuck he wants. I mean, I guess he'll get paid. But the fan casting thing, you guys see that from a couple months ago. It was like, what if the MCU was made in the 90s and it was all the most famous actors of the 90s? It's like, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's let's get Tom Cruise and let's get like, again, Tom Cruise sucks. But like, let's get Tom Cruise in 15 Iron Man movies and so he doesn't get to be in Mission Impossible the one thing that Tom Cruise has done that's worthwhile in his life um, there's this one like line from uh, from Arsenal I, I guess that's how we refer do, is that how we refer to the the, lit, the last AI are we calling it GW Arsenal Gear Arsenal I guess I've never really I never really understood um, as best as I can parse it is just um, it's definitely GW up through like when Raiden's naked and going through you know Arsenal at the end what right before he fights Solidus I think that's the main Patriots AI whether that's like JD or all of the rest of them together um but that's definitely not the worm corrupted AI uh that was GW mm-hmm. okay um, I think that's how it breaks down narratively I don't think it matters and you we're not exactly what you'd call a human yeah um, yeah as it you're broadly talking about the Patriots more or less whatever yeah. whoever AI yeah. is the talking so I'll just say AI. There's a there's a point that the big AI makes that like felt really prescient at the time and then like lost prescience and then now is prescient again. And it's everyone withdraws into their small gated community afraid of a larger forum. Because like there used to be a time where there was a message board for everything. Mm. Like if you were into vacuums, you could find a message board for vacuum people and it had its own little star and like you would never go anywhere else. And then, like, everybody kind of went on to Facebook, and now, as we've sort of seen how algorithms play out, like, there are, on these large sites, those communities re-emerging, but under a larger, like, under a larger banner that, like, kind of can't interact with each other because of, uh, like, the broad data algorithms making sure that you see people that you like. Um, and that's always jumped out to me as, like, epochs within, like, this digital age that the time from you know, uh, vacuum forums or sneaker forums or, you know, wherever everyone was in 2003 to now have, has been one full turn. Like what is old is now new again. I'm just getting, I'm getting depressed about Facebook. Sorry. So like you guys have seen the, the wow, cool robot meme. Of course. Yeah. One of the classics. Um, so the wow, cool robot meme is a, a meme where a Gundam is shooting a firework in the air that says war is bad. And a viewer is looking at the robot saying, wow, cool robot. And a thing that I've always been struck by with Metal Gear Solid is that how non-anime it deals with, like, its technology. Like, in Gundam, it's so easy to, like, Gundam is another anti-war Japanese series, famously so. But it's also really easy to be like, it's so cool when that one robot hits that other robot with a giant laser sword. And you can miss the subtext that war is bad and mass conflict is a misapplication of human resources that could solve all the problems of sentience. Like, that's something that could easily fly over your head. But the viewer never really gets a wow, cool robot moment with the Metal Gears. Most of them look aggressively dumb. They are beasts. They scream. They galunk around. They are not particularly aspirational considering that they are the apex of human science. Like, there are legitimate elements of edgy cool, but they're also generally persons. Like, there's a te- there's techno ninjas. There's a magic railgun saxophone lady. Um, you have a Wild West gun spinning guy. And you have comic book-esque ludicrous academic credentialism. The case is a fat man. This game gives its malign pro- protagonist a fucking sword and it turns into street, uh, Streets of Rage beat-em-up. 
but that's still designed to force an identity and an appreciation of Raiden's way. But it doesn't offer the namesake of the series the same cool. No anime would allow 25, like no other anime or anime influence thing would allow 25 Metal Gear Rays to get swept aside without including a giant grander creation like a Turbo Mega Metal Gear that is, a, you know, 100 million uh, meters tall and made out of the core of a fallen sun or something. Like, I, I thought about uh, the... Uh, the hammers from uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall, which is uh, an un- unintentional glorification uh, of the of the Nazis. Um, you know, it's it's a movie about how authoritarianism is bad, but the hammers are shown in a light that empowers violence for the sake of violence, and it spiritually inspired lookalike gangs in England who saw the violence on screen as an object lesson, establishing or adopting the logos of the hammers and the stylings without irony, being immune to the net intended lessons of Nazism being bad. Metal Gears are whack. They lose a ton of fights. They're envisioned by the camera in an unflattering way. And they are pieces used to evoke the story, worshipped and feared by the plot, but not by the creator or the audience. The only Metal Gear that gets tweeted this way, or treated this way as Arsenal, like right now, by everybody in the story, but also us, who gets the power of the thing. And to me, that's why I think of this as the truest Metal Gear game, because like the rest of them are all fighting. And this is a story about culture. Are you telling me that Roger Waters made a mistake? And it's not as intelligent as he believes himself to be. I'm not sure I buy that. I'm afraid so. Damn. I'm a pretty big Pink Floyd fan, but I, I think that's a totally accurate reading. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. Roger Waters is just kind of a dipshit. Um, I, oh, yeah, for sure. And I do like that point you were bringing about how, you know, you sweep aside 25 Metal Gear Rays and they don't introduce a giant, you know, super Metal Gear or something like that. Um, In a way they do, but it's Arsenal Gear, which is just a giant battleship that kind of sucks, at least from a visual design. Or it's not something like the Megazoid or Megazord or like five different robots combining to form an even cooler robot. It's just a big giant. Metal Gear Mark V. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it, it in insofar as they have a super metal gear, it's just a big clunky piece of shit that you don't even really get a holistic picture of. I think you see it once as a blueprint um, to actually show you the entire shape of it. It's like kind of manta ray shaped, but um, I guess that makes sense if it's armed with a fleet of rays. But uh, no, I, I love that observation. I think that's all great. It's also like the everybody who really likes metal gear, like it, in in the story, is like a super weirdo. Yeah. Like the Emmerichs are never portrayed as like, I mean, they have a lot of points. It's always like, dude, these guys are the worst. Like they are, they are so awful. Well, Huey specifically, like how, how gets his redemption arc pretty quickly after you meet him. But that's as an anti Metal Gear guy. Like when you're the people who create Metal Gears and like really love them are not seen as like solid dudes or even people that you should like look towards. And I find that to be an interesting idea for something, a series that's named Metal Gear. Yeah, as I talked about a lot with, uh, in, in one, like, Snake doesn't like how he meets him. He thinks he's a weird dork. Because that's when he, when he first meets him, he's just supposed to use him as, like, you need to find this guy who knows the most about Metal Gear, and Snake's like, ugh. Weird. And then, yeah, pretty quickly, he, he decides that he's not going to stand for his creations being used in the name of violence, and he decides to help, and Snake immediately starts liking it more. So, yeah, like, the Especially the MGS1 snake, who I think is throughout the series sort of the most, like, the most openly, like, moral. Like, if, if MGS1 snake likes something, then the game wants you to like it. If he doesn't like something, you're not supposed to like it. I guess maybe maybe Naked Snake a little bit, but Naked Snake is a, a different character in his own right. 
Uh, yeah, so I think that's interesting. I think, I mean, Huey definitely, like, he was just a piece of shit. Like, nobody likes him. Uh, even the, the, the Metal Gear guys in, in 3, like, the game is not particularly fond of them. The Metal Gear guys in 5, like, the, the, uh, the children, the, I mean, just everybody who likes a Metal Gear in 5 is just like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't try to be like this gentleman. Which is another one of the things I think, I think he was trying to go with that in, with making, I think that's one of the, the reasons, like, Big Boss using a Metal Gear for political power, but at that point, Big Boss is too cool. Like, it just doesn't work. That's one of the things that doesn't work about the three sequels is, like, it, it never really connects. It, it never at any point does it, does, it, does it connect the guy you play as in Peace Walker to the villain from the first MSX game. Like, it's just not, doesn't come off the same person to me. He's too cool. All right. And now let's start tackling the bigger the bigger ideas that uh, MGS2, like, squarely puts in front of us. And we'll start by reading a DM that Brian got. From Ethan McDougall on Twitter. He said he was listening to Pod Sans Front, which is, that's, that's what the cool kids are calling it. And we were talking about the ideas of memes, and he wanted to run an idea by me about the word meme, which I think is interesting. He, was, he said he was always taught to think of a meme as a cipher to a paradigm, that a meme is a sort of key to language. Again, high school face, I see you. As much as it is a vestige of language. Uh, he said he hasn't listened all the way through to see if we touch more on the Tower of Babel, which we really haven't, but I think that's, that's kind of a, the... Mimetically, that's sort of an interesting concept. But uh, he sees a meme to key his language as much as it is, or as like genetic code, which again, does that fit the Metal Gear at all? Uh, he asks if that's coherent, which yes, it is. And does that track with our understanding? And I would say yes, that that sort of mimetically, the memes are the genes of language almost. Like that's, that's sort of a way, but maybe cultural. Like, because I mean, languages are cultural. Like that's, their primary function in society. But I, I want to know, like, if we're going to go through, like, what we think memes are, does that make sense with how we think of them? Because I think, obviously, as we mentioned before, th- the concept of a meme is very different. The, the context of what that means now is very, very different from what it meant in 2000 and 2001 to Hideo Kojima. Yeah. And I think uh, just to kind of make sure we ground the academic conversation of what a meme is as an idea, behavior, or style that spreads by means of imitation from person to person within a culture and often carries symbolic meaning representing a particular phenomenon or theme. Uh, to Richard Dawkins, who came up with this concept, what and also shitbag human being, I don't want to exclude that while all sorts of anti-trans stuff is coming out. Important. What makes humans unique is our culture, and that has its own replication process distinct from that of genes, uh, though the word meme was specifically selected due to its phonetic similarity to the word gene, deriving from my meme, which has ancient Greek roots and where mime also comes from. Uh, We know Kojima is a fan of Dawkins, or at least his landmark text, The Selfish Gene, since, well, Liquid Snake flat out mentions it in MGS1. Uh, But how does it tie to MGS2? On the most surface level, uh, the narrative level, the controlling information and how it's replicated is core to the Patriots' plan for total societal control. And the opening sizzle reel just hits you with this out of the gate. From the Roman numerals to Japanese script to DNA, it's an assault of different types of data that have been passed down to us, including scenes from the game. But they don't include Raiden, information specifically withheld from us. 
The S3 plan, the selection for societal sanity, is essentially the Patriots putting in a mimetic equivalent to natural selection, but of course, nothing about it is natural. It's what the Patriots want people to know, or at least have access to know. Even the misinformation, which is accumulating in all its triteness, has its value, subsuming certain groups and helping retain societal stability or, less romantically, inertness. And then there's this S3 plan, the solid snake simulation. Like any good meta, S3's meaning is something that applies recursively, reverberating inwards and outwards. The creation of Raiden is carrying on the meme of solid snake, allowing the patriots to create the perfect soldier at will when necessary. And again, I liken it a lot to the Matrix Reloaded in that the anomaly ends up being another source of control. The Patriots, starting from Zero and all iterations after him, have sit, have seen these anomalous figures rise up and threaten their power, from Volgan and the Boss to Big Boss and later to Liquid and Solidus. How nice, then, to be able to create your own snake to defeat whatever Boss threatens Patriot control. All can be returned to square one, which, by design, assumes the existence of Zero. So, I've always understood a meme to be an irre- irreducible unit of culture. Um, like as far down as you can get for any individual unit of culture, uh, in the same way that you'd have like helium being a, an element of science. Um, and not to pull out older, older liable here, but there is a dialectic between science and cultural attempts at problem solving through the history of Metal Gear. Culture fails and then technological, uh, there, then there is a technological pursuit to bridge the gap. The H-bomb ends World War II, post-war cultural, culture unsettles the philosophers, the Shaga had, had is developed. Boss sent it to to solve it, she can't, so she in return. So then she perishes. So we have this so on and so forth interweaving of history until we get to this knot. There was a biological attempt to continue the legacy and skills of boss slash big boss. And the solid snake simulation is a cultural attempt at the same idea. Like it's fascinating how easily Solidus, who is also somewhat out of character, complements the ability of this decorated child soldier who is a guy, not like an illegal genetic government mutations project, not a shadow of the boss, not an object of fate in the way the Emmerich family seems to be. Jack is the victim of war circumstances with, again, just a terrible life. Uh, But he's just a guy. But he's a guy who can be a solid snake, big boss style replacement due to the nature of cultural programming. And the programming also assures that he doesn't get to revolutionizing on on any of the now inert power structures. That's one of the things, uh, not to bring revengeance up again, that is one of the things that is kind of it is weirdly sort of dispelled and re- reaffirmed by Revengeance because a lot of the time, like every other character in the game knows who Raiden is, but none of them think he's important, which is a weird place for a protagonist to be in. Where like he's not. Uh, I just watched the the Bob Odenkirk vehicle, Nobody, and I think the most interesting thing that movie does is kind of invert the John Wick formula of instead of John Wick being this legendary almost like inhumanly efficient figure that everyone knows. Bob Odenkirk the movie is like complete nobody. Like he's completely unknown to everybody. And like is a, but it's, it's portrayed as just as effective. And I think that's kind of a, a fascinating inversion of that concept. And, and Raiden gets that treatment in Revengeance where every, every character knows exactly who he is and everything he's done. And they're also like, yeah, who gives a shit? Like he's not going to stop us. And that's a really strange place it's one of the, the weird things that that game does with his character where he he doesn't get the snake treatment. He's not like the legendary soldier solid snake. He's just like, oh, it's that guy, right? Yeah, I know him. Fuck him. It's really weird. 
Revenge is, revenge is so strange. It's just a strange experience. And all this is just the narrative stuff. As we've stated before, MGS2 is playing in that space in between the game and the player. The game itself is a meme, as the sequel may be the dominant meme in entertainment today. A sequel is the replication of a piece of culture, somewhat changed or mutated from the original version, but a like-kind match all the same. MGS2 specifically highlights this, with the meme theme resonating up from narrative bits to the actual production of the game, as Kojima and KCE Japan figured out how to best replicate MGS1 in a meaningful way way. And just the theme of memes is carrying forward the meme of theme of genes. It's very much the same idea, the concept of what we leave behind for the next generation, but evolved into something else and hopefully something more. And how the two games together carry forward the meme of the selfish gene. And See, we can just do this all day. And we'll circle back at the end to MGS2 as an experience, but you think about Solid Snake's words to you about choosing your reality, acknowledging your past, and doing what you can to fight for a future, that's really what you're doing in terms of carrying on certain bits of information and rejecting others, choosing choosing what information to carry forward into the future, applicable from everything to the player's experience, to what bits of canon you carry to MGS4, to uh, what life lessons you carry on into your everyday comings and goings. No one quite knows who or what they are. The memories you have and the role you were assigned are burdens you had to carry. It doesn't matter if they were real or not. That's never the point. So this, of course, allows me to circle back to my overarching MGS thesis that this game series is about challenging video games as a power fantasy. We've hit on all these points as we've gone along through the game, but just to put a bow on it, uh, pacifist play is, first of all, just a way to allow the player not to wield the ultimate power over NPCs. It's a way to choose not to kill people, which, like we said in 2001, a lot of games like this, as, you know, in terms of shooting and killing people, um, didn't offer this possibility. Even in GoldenEye, if you slap people, they died. And playing as Raiden, of course, is challenging that uh, power fantasy as playing as Solid Snake. Um, you don't get to be Snake when he's legitimately unchanged and at the height of his heroics, at the height of his coolness. He's not a tool for the government or anyone else, including the player. And Snake's or Raiden's whole role in this is artificial, conjured up and controlled by the Patriots. Um, it's a design scenario. Um, he's not exercising free will versus, um, and in fact, everything happening is just under someone's control. So he's ultimately a puppet in more so of a sense than Solid Snake was in Metal Gear Solid 1. And this is kind of reiterated by the game over screens because if you die during the tanker stage as Solid Snake, you get the classic Metal Gear Solid 1 game over screen. When you die as Raiden, you get a computer screen that says Mission uh, mission failed, and it's just a bunch of like data and probably save details. I I wouldn't be surprised if it's literally like streams and binaries that are being saved uh, for your game progress at that point. And you know, and then of course the whole story, as we've dis discussed may not even have happened. It may have been a simulation, uh, may have been some kind of VR exercise. And, you know, the events we saw may have never actually taken place. And it's a total loss of control of the medium that's definitely exacerbated by those fission mailed screens you get in the Arsenal Gear guts, um, as well as the weird code codec calls from the kernel. 
of Snake saying don't be weird is like, to me, when everything really starts going off the rails. This is such an odd line read. It's uh, also like, not that it's odd that it's bad, just like it's not a thing I imagine Snake saying. Also, everything is extremely weird. Just just to, because I never mentioned it, I forgot to mention it when we were talking about the actual gameplay. My favorite line reading game, of course, is a dud, which is, I think, maybe the best line reading any side actor is given in any English language game in history. It's literally 100% funny. Like, every single time it's funny. It's completely insane. Like, imagine if you heard that in your life. Like, what the fuck? It's like a, a highly trained soldier sounding like, I, like a Pokemon back. It's like, like a, just really bizarre. It's a bizarre line reading. I love it so much. As the codec calls start to get stranger, this is where the the audience becomes a character. Um, there is the I'm pregnant line where we see what's going to be said on screen, but it's not sure that like Jack is picking it up or if he sees the words on screen that we do. Um, but a Re- a real rose, if she really existed, has been substituted for with a fake rose uh, who is now being real when she's the voice of Arsenal and GW, something that old Rose wasn't because she was a creation of the Patriots. And we are Raiden, who was fake snake. But now we're being introduced to actual Jack for the first time. Um, it's It's not that confusion is the setting. It's that we have to choose if confusion was the setting previously or if we are now incoherent. Um, our game avatar is no longer a blank slate to be projected onto. He refuses commands. He uh, does his own coughing thing. We're, he is cognizant of us and the game has started to look back at us and we have to decide what's real. Like I said last time, I think it, the like taken, you know, taken outside the context of censorship, that he covers himself up when he's escaping, when he's naked, is a, him directly acknowledging the player. Because, like, if you were being chased by high-tech ninjas, well, and it literally, like, the most life-or-death situation imaginable, you wouldn't give, be giving a shit about covering up your junk. Like, you wouldn't care. But the fact that he does that means that he's be- suddenly become aware of the player. Like, narratively, I think you have to look at it that way. And it's, that's really interesting to me. And the rest of the game, I think Ryan kind of has that, like, sort of almost determination to, to like break out begin become his own man. And I, and you know, it's just that there's that, that blending between of like, as we always say, not snake was not, not no longer a tool for the government or anyone else. And it's like, that's a common line. And I didn't really think about it until we started doing this, that I, or anyone else means you, the person playing the game, which again, is for 2001. It's just shit that games didn't do. Bioshock kind of clumsily did that six and a half years later. And it's still, I don't think it works very well. I kind of have a different reading of that particular interaction. And I, I think it's closer to Manu's where like, I understood that as a joke about the, pl- uh, about the expectations of the player that like he gets tortured. It's realized that like, this is actually the hardest person in this entire series. Um, the person that every like, you know, a uh, guy with spiked hair and like a, a, a chunky puka, puka shell necklace called soft. Um, and the joke is that now he's holding a stick. Like, he's more of a man than you. Snake is more of a man than you. Why don't you sit back and think about that? Um, I I interpreted it that way, but, like, I think that, that your explanation also makes a great deal of sense. Um, well, it could be, it could be, 
two things there because those are two different angles. Like it doesn't have to be, they aren't really in conflict with one another. I don't feel, I don't feel like, cause like the, the Raiden hiding himself from you could be, it's like the game communicating with you. I feel like, like showing you that Raiden is not, like you said, he's not who you thought he was. He's not a blank slate for you to project yourself onto. He's actually a person who isn't particularly comfortable with your view, with you looking at him. And also, yeah, like I've, I've said before, like Raiden, and then Raiden ended up ending up being maybe the most experienced warrior in the entire series. It's a really great little twist. Like it's 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 really it's like again, I, I'm I'm not sure how much like we talked about how uh, Raiden's sexlessness and like his his like it was a deliberate attempt by Kojima to make a less grizzled masculine protagonist, and I think that's true. I do think. For as much as he loves American culture, I don't know if Kojima really predict would have predicted how much American players would hate Ryden at first. And unless they still do. You still see that yeah. shit all the time. But that's also like one of the first times I can remember like uh the lesson of child soldiers hating. Like mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. one of the downsides of lore dump is you're just like, oh that sucks. Oh, that's that's bad. Oh, that's whatever. Like you don't process that material. But for basically this whole game, you're like, this this guy is not Snake. He really is not shit. Like, if Snake were here, this would have gone so differently. And then you're like, they're just like, oh, yeah, uh, Solidus, like, respects this guy. He's probably killed thousands of people as a child in a, you know, in a country that in a that has been fighting a proxy war. Funny you mentioned, you mentioned a lore dump, which is exactly what the Beauty and the Beast unit ended up becoming. I'm just like a series of unfortunate things happen to them, and you, you've given no context, and they never show up again. That's what Raiden could have been, I feel like, yeah. I don't think that... Kojima really predicted how much Americans wouldn't like him. I mean, again, this was a, t- a period in time where the word metrosexual was like a slur. But I think that the uh, the topography of, of Bryden's like gender and how he was handled um, makes this particular story telling beat particularly effective. That like because of all of those reactions, it makes you have to process like this is a, a child soldier. This this he killed people at like a little little age. And now he's re- like the rest of the game is him. I mean, I guess this this goes to my next question of like what the ultimate AI position here is because the way that I understand it at first was that uh, an uh, an AI unit tries to trigger the trauma of a child soldier using existentialism before he fights the president. Yes, that's that's how the game. That's that's the plot of the game. I feel like um, more than just being a postmodernist game, this is specifically or like. Maybe it the genesis of a lot of the, the idea of like we talked about this game as a response to the concept of sequels, which it is. That's one of the strongest aspects of its creation, I feel like. But I wonder how much of that came from because I know Kojima knows what Dada is, and I want to know if people know what Dada is because I don't. I you know I went to college. I had art courses where people. Uh, droned on about Dadaism without explaining it for weeks and weeks. But I, the most, the simplest way I can describe Dada. So after the spread of industrial capitalism, which directly resulted in the first world war, I think the art community as such as it was, which at that point was still very insular community. You wouldn't believe it. It's definitely not now. Um, <laughs> uh, to those people, common sense ceased to exist in a lot of the ways. That's the, the Duchamp especially. That, that's that's his sort of driving principle. The amount of destruction seen uh, literally across the world sort of 
get away with the idea of like, I mean, the, the famous 19th century idea that like certain types of people, you know, like the sort of uh, war phrenology of like, these people are more brutal over here and these people are less brutal. And no, it just meant that like every country, every single person on the face of the planet was equally capable of the same kind of atrocities. It formed a cynical pluralism is the phrase I've always introduced about it. And that led to directly to modernism, to the to fictional characters becoming aware that they are characters and eventually sort of fracturing out. And modernism and postmodernism are sort of intertwined. And I think postmodernism is just sort of response to it. Which is why James Joyce is kind of a modernist and a postmodernist, because um, depending on how schizophrenic he was feeling when he wrote something, a character would either be a modernist character, a modernist protagonist, or a postmodernist protagonist. But anyways, through this entire sequence of events, this you know industrialism did not stop after World War One. In a sane society, we'd be like, oh, maybe we shouldn't be making this. We shouldn't be manufacturing the. the uh, the, the, all these war machines at this rate. No, it kept going. The world became smaller and smaller and paradoxically became larger because it became harder and harder to kind of escape your uh, your place in life, like what you were. Uh, this is where, this is, this is a postmodern idea that everything becomes the present tense after that. There's no past. There's no past tense in this and it's very much continued today. The future is never assured. It still isn't. At, at this point, at the point we're at now, it's seeming like it's guaranteed to not exist, which is great to think about. Um, but even in even in the mid twentieth century, even pre war, it was folded into the present, and that only be, that only accelerated more and more. So now everything you work like a chunk of your paycheck, if you make enough money, goes into your retirement plan and your four hundred one k and your taxes for next year. Little kids live in faces. You know, they, it's it's not. It's, there's no there's no longer just childhood. It's this cyclical little five six month phases that kids go through because they're so overwhelmed by the responsibilities of being an adult that are approaching them more and more rapidly. The unemployed are quote in between jobs. Everyone is an individual person deserving of respect, but nobody is actually important. Global capitalism does not require that everyone selects their own personal and political brands and ideologies through the lens of corporations and movie studios. Now at this point. Who now get free PR from all their little servants? If you, because if if you dare to criticize the work, they attack you and tell you that you have to go see the next Marvel movie or else you're the communist or whatever they're saying. Now I don't know. Uh-huh. They're complimenting me. <laughs> yeah, that that's that's all we have. Like this this common thing that you hear now, but people, a lot of conservatives and arch conservatives and pretend conservatives, which is just what I call Nazis. Uh, are they do this thing? They still do it here, where they have to say they're defending American culture. And it's like, what culture are they talking about? Oh, they're talking about like TGI Fridays and like going to the mall and like the, the most garbage, the least consequential shit you've ever imagined. They don't. They don't mean when they say American culture. They don't mean like we must protect the works of James Fenimore Cooper or whoever. They mean like, you know, if if you try to tell me I can't go to Applebee's on a Thursday night, that you should be killed. 75% of the world's population should die for, to preserve my right to go to Fuddruckers. Like, that's that's what they mean. And it's insane. But because this country offers nothing else to them, and this world, this world that was exposed for what it was in World War One, it's it's just, that's all that's all there's left. That's all that's left. So, now, we, now we're confronted with, and this is, this is an extension of Dada's thought, we're confronted with 
endless expanded universes and properties and studios all stretching into the future forever. Nothing exists anymore. Nothing means anything. And in response to that, a lot of the art, especially, like I said, Duchamp's art, uh, became not art. It became completely completely not not traditional representational art is what I would say. It became completely abstracted from any sort of inherent aesthetic value and it has become completely metaphoric in nature. And I really feel like as far as looking at this game as a sequel, uh the the the, the deliberate manipulation of hiding Raiden and hiding ninety percent of what the game looked like is meant to do that. It's meant to completely divorce whatever your expectation was for a Metal Gear Solid sequel is completely ripped away from whatever happens. And you are left to deal with that, which is what Dadaism is about, is confronting you with what you think art is. That's that's the entire concept of Dada. I could have said that simpler, but I felt like I had to explain it. Uh, it's, it's like, whatever you think, you have to confront yourself. Like, if, you, if you're a person who thinks that art is landscape portraits, then you're going to be upset by this stuff. And if you're a person who thinks that a Metal Gear sequel should just be do Solid Snake again, I want to do more, fight more robots, you, you were going to be upset by this game. And people were. The way that I've, like, internalized Dadaism, I don't know if it's the technical definition, is that it's bad taste for a good reason. Yes. Like, your exhibition is somebody taking a shit in, in, in a urinal, and you're like, that's art. And you're like, well, I don't like that. And you're like, well, there we are. Um, However, I struggle with that with Kojima because uh, I don't think that he knows or like cares about juxtaposition. I just think that he stacks as many things that he thinks is, are like cool on top of each other and doesn't see like any inherent friction between high or low brow units of culture. Like he sees the selfish gene and uh, naming different types of helicopters and smoking on a cool index with no interrelationship or, uh, you know, causation of why they're good. Like he has an extremely smooth brain about these things. That's, that's the, that's the paradox. That's the quote of the paradox. Like those, I think those things both might be true because he's just a fucking bizarre person. Okay. So there's this vine um, of uh, this dad looking at his, his child, like uh, coloring a brick outside, like a, uh, with a, with, um, with chalk. And the, the brick is blue. And the dad's like, hey, why are you painting the brick blue? And the kid like looks up at him, scoffs, and is like, because blue is fucking tight. And there's like three seconds of pause. And the last thing he hears, oh. And like, I feel like if you asked Kojima about like why a lot of these things are here, like you'd either get an extreme answer about uh, like the military industrial complex or be like, because are fucking tight. Because John McClane did it. I thought that was cool. Yeah. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, that Kojima is a Dadaist. I don't think that's the part of the thing that he is. That he tapped into that that sort of cultural expect, sequel expectation in a very Dadaist way, and he certainly knows what it is because again, he's a he's a uh, pretentious art guy, also a lot. But that's a thing he's a big fan of, as, as evidenced by his entire Twitter persona. And but also like Norman Reedus as the guy, like the actor of Hollywood, Norman Reedus, and Matt Mickelson, of course. Yeah, but that was true. We all agreed with that. I mean, I think th I think that you have some wonderful points about the interrelationship of Dadaism and Kojima, but like the person that, as a pretentious art guy, um, uh, who I see the most in, in this work is uh, J.L. Borges, especially the Garden of Forking Pass, which is a short story about like three layers of unreliable narrators that basically just talks about like the way that the human mind navigates labyrinths and 
time and the nature of multiple outcomes of reality, but like within a war story. And you can read it however you want to. You can read it really closely and like map out all of the different outcomes that are happening in this, you know, 13 page story or whatever. Or you can just be like, cool things are happening here. And to me, that's very Metal Gear Solid 2 to be like, what is happening here? Cool stuff could be, or it could be the things you hate. Um, and I really love that. Uh, it also contains, I think, the firm opinion on canon, which is what remains is unreal and unimportant. Because like, there's just so many people who are obsessed with this this idea of canon. It just doesn't matter. Like the power fantasy is a canonical concept. Like there is a straight line between, there is a straight line like in in power fantasies of what is real because like it's essential to the story. There is a wrong happening. The wrong is righted by the hero and it's because the hero in a narrative sense, was so strong that they were able to write it. It is impossible to have a non-canonical version of anything because it's like an extremely simple story. But like this, there you don't really have a hero. Like you, not like actually. You don't meet your protagonist for real until like 90% of the way through the story. Well, as I said, uh, Solidus in many ways is actually the protagonist of this game. I mean... Classically. But if you're a person who hates nuance, like like most people who love the idea of canon or, you know, are Star Wars fans. Of course they are. The hero is the AI because it's trying to say, like, the bad thing is being human. The bad thing is actually, like, living in a society where you have to parse through uh, disparate elements that may be upsetting and, and try to come to a more har- harmonious factor. Like, that's the logic of a machine. I'm going to turn into the Joker, Jack. I'm going to become the Joker. Um... <laughs> like Tamakazu Fukushima, who uh, was, I would think, a, a huge part of writing this from uh, what I've seen of Ghost Babel. Uh, and yeah, that's that's the other thing is like maybe a lot of that data, maybe a lot of the actual data concepts come from Fukushima because it seems that seems more up his his alley from what we know about it. But it's hard. We said this before. It's hard to really we don't really know anything about him, so it's hard to really pinpoint and be like this is from him and this is from Kojima like it's the like Peace Walker and Portable Ops have like really obvious ethical narratives uh, like you may have disagreements with the conclusions but you don't know you it's very clear where the story what the story believes yeah where like I think if you asked 10 different people who had spent 10 hours with this piece of media you would probably get 10 different conclusions about what the story is trying to tell you and what people come away from it and I think that one of the reasons why I like I think that Dada is an element, but not necessarily the whole, is that Dada has wants you to come to a couple conclusions. Oh, it is perhaps it's one of the most ethically driven yeah. art art, especially at least in the 20th century, like not like formalism, I guess is. But there is an element of Dada that I would like to talk about. And that is uh the cut-up method. You guys will eventually talk about uh what I think a lot of people are gonna assume is the David Bowie game. My argument is that this is the David Bowie game. Because there's so much here that feels like a cut-up method where you just throw a whole bunch of pieces into fractals, you lay them out on the floor, and you force the the audience to say, write the song. There's all the lyrics. They're in whatever order you pick. Make the narrative you choose. And five is sort of like that, which, I mean, is, of course, the David Bowie game because it's musical choices. Three is the one that was supposed to actually end with a David Bowie song, but we'll talk about that. But it doesn't feel that way necessarily. Like, three has... Three is not about the like the subconscious's conclusions that aren't necessarily true. No, no, no. Three, three aesthetically, I think is trying to be David Bowie. Yes. Three is, three is, uh, I'm really, con- I'm not concerned. I'm wondering how much actual, like philosophical conversations we can have about three. Cause it's more that 
one of the reasons it's my favorite one, but it's it's the most popular one in a lot of ways because that one is sort of like, wow, cool robot, the game. Like, wow, cool snake. That's the whole game. <laughs> Don't worry, I got you covered on that. <laughs> we'll, we'll have plenty. Those side conversations, I think, are going to carry a lot of... Um, a lot of the philosophical thrust. Um, Bowie yeah, talks, yeah. Bowie yes, talks about yeah. uh, writing with, like, obviously uh, Bowie spanned enough years that the, the cut up method went from, you know, writing on, on pill bottles and rearranging them to actually doing it on a computer. And uh, in 97, he has a BBC interview. Um, I think this is the same interview where he talks about uh, MTV not playing black artists. Bowie is an, an amazing human being. Uh, I'll take articles out of newspapers, poems I've written, pieces of other people's books, and put them into this little warehouse, this container of information, and then hit the random button that will randomize everything. And, like, that creates these strange connections. And that's how you get, like, one of my favorite uh, moments of ludonarrative assonance, which is, like, there's two moments of this game talking shit to the protagonist and also you. Like, the game is like, yeah, I dare you to turn it off. See what happens. Like, you won't do it. And then the end of the game, as I said, is like the Patriots being like, the AI telling Ryden, like, yeah, you're human and that's bullshit. Like, you like all those things you feel? Awful. Pathetic. And it is... I, I find that fascinating because, like, that's not a natural connection, but it's one that, like, feels very cut up. It feels data in its application but not necessarily is, is, is ethical consumption. I would say the, the only way I would say that, that, that this game faces Dadaism ethically is it, it does kind of feel like this world and not, not the metal, not the world of metal gear, but I do feel like there is something like this world does not deserve a sequel to metal gear solid. And I don't know if that, that, that probably not going to close at all, but I mean, he famously didn't want to make it. He, every one is the last one. But that, that's one of the major Dadaist philosophies is that like a world capable of the First World War is not deserving of representational art. It's not something that you, you don't deserve to see it anymore because you, you've caused this. And I don't think anyone living in the current hellscape of global capitalism would really say that we do deserve like quality representational art. But the more interesting thing is like, what does representational art mean? Why do people... Like, why is that entirely literally minded art? Like, does that actually have value? A painting of a, some woods? Like, what is that? People always say, like, it, it makes me calm. It's like, we'll just go outside. <laughs> Cut out the middleman here. Like, I don't... And it's not to say, like, the people, you know, plenty of representational artists are extremely talented. And it's there's nothing wrong with it. It's just... Again, like, it's, it's one of the reasons I like Metal Gear, because it's like... People always say, but I, I got this a lot. I'm sure you guys, so, money, I'm sure you got this. It's particularly people being like, well, I prefer Splinter Cell because it just lets you play the game more. It's like, cool, I don't want to play that game. Fuck, like, I don't give a shit. I'm not, I'm not someone's dad. I don't care about Tom Clancy. Like, I, the, the stealth in Splinter Cell is great. I just don't care. Yeah. I don't want to play it. I very specifically was thinking about Splinter Cell the other day. It's like, why aren't I into as many other stealth games as I am into Metal Gear Solid, because I do love it for its stealth gameplay as much as anything. It's half ASMR for me, and it's also half, like, really tense gameplay. Like, I'm fully alert, you know, trying to avoid alerts and guards and all that. Um, but yeah, you know, s- s- uh, what, I, Siphon Filter, is that even what it's called? Or, or Splinter yeah. Cell, whichever one you want to call, go with. Um, those have a lot of uh, mechanics that, you know, I would love theoretically in a stealth game. And you were talking about like 
sequels, like, I will have to, sorry, correct you here, that MGS2, I think, is the one sequel that Kojima did want to make because they started it in September 1998 when uh, MGS1 came out. But 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 you can't say, you definitely can't say that he was interested in doing a straightforward sequel. Correct. Like, I definitely, that, I mean, that's this game exists as a rejection of that concept. That That's exactly what I think I want to get into next, is that um, it's a sequel, but it's not a sequel that we would be familiar with, because a sequel is supposed to be something familiar, bankable, giving the audience more of the same. And it's a continuation. not doing any of that on a narrative level, but it's also kind of less so doing that on a gameplay level, too, because... Um, as compared to a lot of other Metal Gear games, it doesn't have as many like collectibles or achievements other than your ranks. I mean, there's different ways you can do stuff, but you know, it's not about like completing your checklist and all your fetch quests. And granted, it's not a fetch quest kind of game, um, but it's definitely um, it's not geared towards all those little you know releases of dopamine you get when you 100% some subtask or something like that. It's more about what you're extracting. And even compared to three, even compared to three, three has a lot of that. But I wanted to say real quick, um, you you mentioned other stealth games and I'm a big stealth game guy. The reason I don't like, like I don't care about Splinter Cell is because it's third person stealth, which is just like, the whole point of stealth games to me is to immerse you. Like that's what Dishonored does so well. That's what, I mean, that's what every arcane game does. Well, that's all the data sex. That's what all the uh, immersive sim games do well. But those games work because they just like they have this systemic stuff that happens, like the way that they're literally called immersive sims. That's I just mentioned the two words without meaning to. Um, and like, like I like it because Hitman is funny and has interesting political concepts and is like weird. It's a very different kind of stealth game. Like it's an open stealth like. Most of the time in Hitman, you're hiding in crowds and in public areas. And the stealth is, in those games, is built between like getting the right outfit for the right area that lets you get to here to set up a weird, wacky Rube Goldberg assassination. That's not, that's not really a stealth game at that point. That's just like a weird puzzle game with made by some uh, weird Northern European guys who only make that game. Like, it's just like a big, it's its own thing. And other stealth games, like, I never had interest in those in like the war stealth games that were Metal Gear because they're not interesting. They just just doing that stuff on its own does not interest me in any way. It has to have something else, and uh, thankfully Metal Gear had a lot of something else. But go ahead and continue. I think that this game tries to punish its fans for wanting another Metal Gear game, like. It's a it's a cut up game. It's a game that that is as against interpretation as possible. Yes. And that like it refuses to let you be comfortable with your expectations. Because even if you want to be the ultimate nerd who wants to make Snake look as good as possible and you want to beat this game fully, you have to play the big boss runs where Raiden is stronger than Snake and you have to protect Snake. And that's gonna cause you psychic damage. It's going to cause you psychic damage to protect Snake with a sword even though he has infinite ammo and there's, you know, extensive ideas about uh, whether this is real or not. But like, you have to come to terms with what this game is telling you. And what it's telling you is that it's not Metal Gear Solid 1. And I think that it's important because like sequels imply that the, the sequels subtly demand that they are failure experiences. If you want something to continue, it involves not winning. Like, 
Snake can't beat the Metal Gears. Like, progress will lurch forward, but you don't actually want Snake to win because, like, then you wouldn't get any more games. Like, that was the problem with, with the EU of, of Luke Skywalker was that, like, he would have a roadblock and he would automatically burst through it after a moment of peril because nothing could harm Luke Skywalker. You certainly weren't going to do it in, like, a paperback that cost $4 that was written by, uh, you know, 14 people um, in, in two weeks. Like, a them- a thematically, this story couldn't be less about the form that it's telling you. And that's why these games are so interesting, is because their stories aren't normal. Because the story the story itself is about doing things you can only do in video games. Uh, Ko- Kojima talks about how, like, he failed as a writer. Can't imagine why. Yeah, and I think that's because he's trying to make this, the experience more heightened than more heightened than the medium. Like, doing things in video games you can only do in video games. And, like, the way that you do that is that you just create the weirdest stuff possible that people have to parse through. Like, you have to have time jumps and do super hypnosis and have septuple crosses and have canon not make any sense and have a character where there's not actually a logical explanation on how your main character beat them. Because the story isn't the story. Like, this story is about a mimetic family on rails. Like, the inheritance of the snakes and the fact that, like, they're always going to sort of win and sort of lose that you can keep playing. And Olga in, in this, Olga Glukovic says this explicitly saying it's impossible even for Snake to destroy this thing. And like, that's how you craft meaning out of the perpetual, knowing that there's more Metal Gear Solids coming and, you know, that there are basically like eight or nine in this franchise is that you have to create moments that supersede what's actually happening. Um, and like I find Metal Gear Solid to be uh, a series that is pessimistic about human nature and very optimistic about the human condition. Um, there's a lot of negative ideas that are said by uh, by the AI that are like, how dare you be human? But the actual like uplifting message at the end is like the personal censorship of like, you get to pick who you are. And like, as a person who's had to forget things that they've done or been in the past to like sort of continue to their uh, their current life. Like, I find this so earnest that it's, like, wrapped all the way around past Campy back into, like, hard-earned truth, which I find to be the Kojima special. Like, it's not that he is a guy who likes leather jackets. He's like, no, no. Leather jackets are cool because they're cool. Like, it doesn't matter who else has done them. They're cool because they're cool, and you should feel that. I, I, as I said before, this, I think for people who are not, they have no experience with Metal Gear, the Metal Gear is more like Jojo's Bizarre Adventure where it's like deliberately zany yes. and like over the top and like it is like weird shit happens in Metal Gear but it's it's played so earnestly and so straight that it's not the tone at all. To people in Metal Gear Solid this shit is important and so it feels more important. The Jojo Bizarre Jojo's Bizarre Adventure uh, point is very uh, important because the Jojo's Bizarre Adventure its grand achievement is that it avoids, it avoids power creep so, like, there's not, you know, uh, Super Saiyan 14 in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure because everybody has skills that only work in one specific moment. And the, the, the true storytelling masterpiece is getting people into places where, like, the guy who's in chat who can fight in shadows is actually the strongest person. Or, like, mind-reading Eagle is, you know, the weakest character in this particular moment. Or the guy who uh, defeated an immortal gay vampire with time-stopping abilities, Luke gets his ass kicked by a rat with a gun. Yep. Because the circumstances allowed there to be meaning in a story that, like, we all know where it's going, but, like, how you get there is essential. Well, we do in, we do in three, for sure. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. but you know that, like, four, they, yeah. 
like Sony's not going to stop making money. Yeah, yeah. They would like more of these games. Like it's going to exist in one form or another. And like I, I read an interview with like the the person who did the localization, and they were like, "Yeah, like, I hated this game." Like, it's so poorly written. Like, there's all of this, uh, like, there's scenes that are just, like, one-to-one copies of action movies and characters that are straight up, like, this has to be named this character. And, like, that's why I like it. Because there are characters named, like, Freezing Cold Man or whatever. And that, like, and if, if there wasn't these, like, extreme moments of this is what I like and why I like it, this would be, like, a shitty philosophy text and a pulpy political thriller. Which, at times, like, it is. But it contains multitudes because seemingly everyone who is involved in the, creating these games is the strangest person on the face of the earth. <laughs> and like that's why it can be different things to different people is because it's just like this game is a funhouse mirror of whatever you choose to go into it with. And if you go into it with an open mind, you can gain something like I would say legitimately profound from a game that begs you to turn it off. And I think that's great. Something we can carry on to the future for sure. Life isn't just about passing on your genes. We can leave behind much more than just DNA. Through speech, music, literature and movies, what we've seen, heard, felt, anger, joy and sorrow. These are the things I will pass on. That's what I live for. We need to pass the torch and let our children read our messy and sad history by its light. We have all the magic of the digital age to do that with. The human race will probably come to an end sometime and new species may rule over this planet. Earth may not be forever, but we still have the responsibility to leave what traces of life we can Building the future and keeping the past alive are one and the same thing. And that's mission complete for this episode. Before we do our regular sign-off, PD, let the audience know where they can find you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, you can find me on Twitter at, at AboveTheBreak3, where I write about basketball and occasionally make terrible Joris Kaboth puns that all of my Twitter followers hate. And thanks again for joining us. As a little tease, we're going to break from our regular format next time. And me and Brian are actually going to dive deep into the James Bond franchise uh, with the special episode focused on uh, the history of Bond, how we came to Bond, and how Bond informs Metal Gear Solid, as it'll be a very important touchstone as we dive into Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. Our frequency is podcastsonsfrontiers at gmail.com, and you can find us at podsandsfront on twitter.com and instagram.com. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm still Brian. I'm not even going to say it again. Bye. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. And for the very last time, remember, you can't say goodbye to yesterday. I can't say goodbye to yesterday, my friend, because I know how good it has been. Facing forever, here I stand, come what
I think you can take it further than games criticism, like franchises as a concept. Yeah. We're in a terrible place. Like I grew up in, uh, in reading, you know, hundreds of pages of really bad Star Wars books. Me too. We should talk about this. <laughs> yeah. Where, um, like nothing ever happened meaningful. Like it would, it would be like, you know, a season of ER where like the actual events happen. From the Thrawn books to the new Jedi Order, nothing happened. Nothing at all. Are you calling Mara Jade nothing? He was in the Thrawn books. Like once those books ended and once the new Jedi Order started, it was literally, it was what, eight years, nine years of like nothing. <laughs> I won't allow you to say these terrible things about Wedge and Antilles. Uh, listen, I like the, the, the Rogue Squadron books were good. Those were the only ones because they, they embraced that sort of, I mean, they had shit happen, but like. Yeah, but they, they were marginalia. Yeah, but they embraced like the idea of it just being pulp. They were just like, let's just do like a cool. These guys are like fighter pilots, and that's cool. And like that was good. That was that worked fine. But like, yeah, it's the reason I still defend the new Jedi Order, even though they're not particularly good, because like stuff happens at least. <laughs> yeah, somebody they, people get character arcs some of some kind, except for Luke because he's not he was not allowed to have one. I'll try to tie this all back and say yeah, that sorry. my favorite strategy guide is uh, the Final Fantasy VI, or as I knew it at the time, the Final Fantasy III strategy Final guide. Fantasy III, yeah. Because the author was very cheeky in it and pointed out every Star Wars reference in Final Fantasy VI, <laughs> uh, from you know Wedge and Biggs all the way up to uh, Kefka throwing the Emperor off uh, the floating continent. It, it was quite great. The writer definitely had a sense of humor and knew his shit and and that was my favorite. That's the thing. I, I need to. I need to maybe scan that. I have the Metal Gear Solid unauthorized strategy guide. It's wonderful. And there's there's more than one time there where the, the guy's like, he has screenshots in the game, but he's like, I'm not allowed to post screenshots of this part. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? It's really good. It's the most late '90s looking thing. Like, you know how the menu of Metal Gear Solid looks? You know that that visual style. The whole thing looks like that on the inside. It's almost unreadable. It's awful, and I love it. Well, all that said, <laughs> we're actually here to talk about Metal Gear Solid 2 